Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. As we've discussed on the show before, uh, memory is a complex topic. There are things we remember, there are things we forget, there are the things we only think we've forgotten, and then there are the numerous ways in which altered memories are stored and then retrieved as if they're fact. Memory is powerful, it's beautiful, it's dangerous at times, and it's essential uh, to human culture and the human experience. In this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the issues related to memory and music, Uh, Because the way we think about, store, and recall music, uh, I feel like this helps illuminate what's going on in the complexity of memory. And it's also something that's 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 highly relatable. We can we can all uh, dip in on this this particular topic, and I I look forward to hearing from listeners about it. But also, we're dealing with something that's you know slightly intangible. You know, you try and when you try and think and talk about how you remember music, how songs stick with you over the ages, and what songs mean to you, uh, you you know, you get into a lot of interesting territory. Sure. I mean, I think one of the most common things that we can all relate to is the way that music has uh, such a powerful ability to evoke bygone places and times that, you know, to, to just sort of like put you right back in the mindset of, you know, that summer, or the year that you were 19 years old or whatever. Um, and it's kind of strange why sequences of sounds do that seemingly so much more than almost any other uh stimulus of any kind yeah yeah the um you know there's a lot of of nostalgia uh tied up in music and uh you know i i thought i might share an, a personal example of uh, of how i sometimes feel like i'm i'm haunted by music sharing this because i think it's a good example for our discussion but also deep down i have this secret hope that somebody will will help me identify this or send me a, maybe just, you know, send me a VHS tape that will answer my question. Uh, And I imagine people out there have had similar, many similar experiences. So as a child, uh, home one summer and watching lots of daytime television, uh, I saw a commercial for a community college or state college. I'm not sure which, but it, I seem to recall it was probably a regional advertisement. Uh, This might've been for, um, it might have been a college in Tennessee, or it might have been a college in Kentucky. I'm not sure which, but it contained various you know, splashes of technology and humanities classes. It showed mm-hmm. footage of uh, of people, you know, tinkering with some electronic equipment, uh, you know, doing some other stuff that looked uh, vocational. And it also contained uh, footage of a stage performance featuring what I think was a cyclops, like a large scale cyclops costume that towered over people. It nice. might have been a minotaur, but I think it was a cyclops. Uh, you can respect their advertising department saying, okay, we got a bunch of footage of the stage productions. What 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 goes front and center in the commercial? It's got to be the monster. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it made an impression on, on my mind. But what also made an impression was the music in this commercial. Uh, because at the, at the time, and as I look back on it, it felt like the music of the future. It was some sort of glistening, retro-sounding synth. And I've never been able to find out exactly what it was. I've I've never found like footage uploaded on YouTube of this particular uh, advertisement. And uh, as far as I know, the, the commercials just lost to history. And again, it was likely very regional. But 
listening to Boards of Canada, the the uh, the musical duo years later, who specializes in, in often very nostalgic founding, sounding retro synth tracks, um, I did listen to a track titled M9 off of Old Tunes Volume 1, and it either, it, it reminds me a lot of what was the of the song that was in this advertisement. It reminds me so much that I'm I'm tempted to wonder if this was the track somehow. This is funny because to me, Boards of Canada very much is the sound of like an atrium in a in an institutional building on a college campus that has like sort of futuristic looking staircases zigzagging around mm-hmm. and like an orange carpet or something. Exactly. That's I mean that's the complicating thing, right? The kind of sounds that uh, the Boards of Canada excels at crafting are are sounds that are reaching back towards the time period. Like they're 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 kind of uh, reverse engineering the sort of sounds I would have heard in this advertisement. And I'm not sure exactly when I would have listened to this advertisement. The tape in question, uh, Old Tunes, Vo- Tunes Volume 1, came out in, I think, 1996. But I'm, yeah, I'm not sure how the timelines add up here. And if they do add up, I'm not sure exactly how that track would have wound up on this, this commercial in, uh, mm-hmm. like I say, in Tennessee or Kentucky or, or something. Um, and, and again, I'll likely never have the answer to it. But every time I listen to that track, M9, it takes me back to that experience of watching this this advertisement and sort of glimpsing into this possibility of what the future was like, what college might be like, what adulthood might be like, what, you know, a, a life of technology or art, what that might consist of. I think it's interesting. I don't know if you're even aware you said this, but that your vision of the future necessarily includes consciously retro elements, like yeah. retro sounding synth is what you what you think of when you think of the future. Yeah, it's it it's weird. Yeah, and and, it, and I'm still kind of tied to this where I see you know, like there's certain building styles which are no longer modern that are very much retro, but they still look like the future to me because they look like. Uh, in many cases, they looked like uh, you know these strange, uh, you know, collegiate buildings that I saw when I was a child. You know, some of these buildings yeah. that were probably built in the 1970s that were you know super reliant on air conditioning and maybe didn't have as much natural light. Yeah, sort of thing. The, the, like the atrium and overdrawn at the memory bank. It exactly. is both. It is both of the past and of the future. Yeah, that that uh, I forget which uh, atrium was used in that movie, but they made great use of an atrium there. Uh, there are various other sci-fi films. I love it when it's clear that they're filming inside of a hotel or a mall and making mm-hmm. it look like some sort of like a futuristic uh, building. Uh, absolutely love it. And to that extent, I love just being in a large atrium. There is, I mean, these are like cathedrals. They're just, uh, you know, the, the god at the center of it is just uh, the hotel chain. And they give you a brutal hankering for some cinemas. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the, the overdrawn of the memory bank jokes can can stop right now. <laughs> well, you know, everything that I've talked about so far, we've been talking about uh, Boards of Canada, we've been talking about music that, ha- that, is, uh, that is completely um, instrumental. It has no lyrics, because once you start talking about lyrics, uh, this, this adds an entirely different dimension to everything. Yeah, so this is something that I wanted to talk about, uh, because I came across a paper that I, that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, so I guess here's the best way to introduce it. I want to start with a couple of questions for anybody who ever did school theater as a kid. If you were in plays when you were in you know elementary school or whatever, if you ever had a speaking part in a play, can you still now remember any of your lines? 
And if so, how much can you remember? And then the second part is, uh, same time of your life, if you ever had a singing part in a musical, can you still remember the lyrics to any of the songs? If you are anything like me, you probably find that you don't really remember many spoken lines from childhood plays. Uh, most of the ones that stick in my head are, I think they're memorable because something like maybe something funny or otherwise memorable happened during practice of the scene they're in. So they sort of become a part of an episodic memory. But but even examples like that are, are pretty rare in my memory. But I, I can quite easily and immediately remember all kinds of lyrics from songs that I sang many years ago and haven't practiced since. Songs from the Pirates of Penzance or, uh, or like a, a musical adaptation of, of God knows what kind of weird stuff I was in as, as a child. But like the, the lyrics have stayed in my brain for 20 plus years. Yeah, my my experience is much the same. Um, you know, I think back on, on plays that I was in, and, and and in some cases I had like pretty major roles, had a lot of lines to remember. Like I believe I was in a, in a community production of Other People's Money, and I remember nothing. I had nothing at all that I said from that play. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which on one hand I understand because I I didn't like love that play. I mean, it was an enjoyable experience at the time, but. Uh, it's not like my favorite play or anything, so it makes sense that I would maybe uh, make room for other things in my memory and sort of flush that information. Um, but then, and, but then I also think back on musical community theater musicals I was in, and in some cases I had pretty major roles there. Uh, I was in a production of Seventeen Seventy Six, mm-hmm. and I don't remember any of the music from that. I don't remember. I remember the costumes and sort of the experience, but I remember no words that came out of my mouth. Well, for me, I I don't know how much it has to do. I mean, I don't think I have any particular love for like the Pirates of Penzance, but I could still rat. You know, I am the very model of a modern major general. Yeah. All the you know the uh, from Marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. And this is interesting to me because in both cases, the lines I spoke and the lyrics I sang are collections of verbal text. In both cases, I would have made a conscious effort to memorize them, and I would have practiced them by repeating them out loud over and over. But for the most part, the spoken lines for me completely fade away, and a lot of the song lyrics have remained. They have way more staying power overall. Obviously, I don't remember all of them. So what's making the difference? Yeah, this... this this is interesting because uh, I also think back on things that I liked. For instance, um, I had to learn the the dagger monologue from Macbeth for um, uh, just a, a Shakespearean acting class I took once, mm-hmm. and and I, lo- I love that monologue. It's a great monologue. And there have been times since then where I kind of wish I could just belt out that monologue in in its entirety, but I cannot. It's it's mostly gone. Just with you know a few lines remain. And if I re- read it, you know it comes, sort of comes back to me a little bit. But then there are things like Don McLean's American Pie, a song <laughs> that I have never performed. It's not uh-huh. like community theater or something where I had to get up and actually perform this stuff in front of people and work through, you know, memorize and work through stage fright. But with, with American Pie, I could probably recite all of that right now. Uh, you know, I haven't right. listened to it in a, in, a, in a long time. But like that is a, that is a song where like the entire... Um, uh, you know the entirety of the lyrics. Uh, you know they're just stuck in my head and they're not going anywhere. Uh, and it's because of the power of the music, I guess. 
Well, maybe, maybe not. I mean, it, I guess it's hard to say why exactly it is that, that these lyrics seem to stick with us for so long. Now, another thing just from personal experience to sort of inform this question is that I, I have also definitely in my life, back when I was in school, uh, tried to use melody as a mnemonic device when trying to memorize things for a test. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you ever did this, but I, I remember like trying to create songs or set things I was trying to remember to the melodies of existing songs. And I don't know if it worked for me, but I at least thought it might work enough that I tried to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I don't have a lot of personal experience with this, but I've uh, I've, you know, I, I've heard that it works for some people, like some people, uh, and, and, and in general, I'm talking about Western, um, uh, sinologists, uh, sometimes memorize, uh, the, uh, the dynasties of China, uh, by using a particular song. I forget which song it is, but it's like some Western song. And then you American throw, pie. It's not American <laughs> pie, uh, but you can, you can look it up. I, I remember finding a video of like a couple of old sinologists, uh, Western sinologists sitting around singing this little uh, childhood uh, tune because it's how they both uh, learned the order of the dynasties. Uh, uh, so it definitely works for people, but I, I don't think I ever really leaned on it myself. Okay, well, I, I would like to hear that. Maybe you have to look that up later. But so I, I was wondering a couple of things. So first of all, is this preference for uh, at least the perceived ability to memorize song lyrics over other verbal content? Is this just me? And second, is there any evidence that this actually works, that, that this is actually true? Uh, so first thing is, it seems, based on what we've been talking about, it may not be universal, but it's definitely not just me. I found plenty of articles in the mainstream press about using music as a mnemonic device or a learning tool and some researchers thinking that, that music or setting uh, verbal information to music might p help people remember it better. But the second question would be, is there evidence that it actually works? And there, I think the evidence might not be a firm yes or no. It's actually quite complicated, but complicated in, in ways that seem pretty interesting and might reveal some things about our experience of music and about the way memory works. So there are actually a ton of studies on the role of music and, and the effects of music on memorization and verbal learning. Um, so I, I, I can't uh, do, do that whole slate of literature. Instead, I wanted to start by focusing on one study that I found interesting uh, and then maybe comment a little more broadly. So this study was published in 2007 in the journal Memory and Cognition. It is by Amélie Rasset and uh, Isabel Peretz, and it's called Learning Lyrics, To Sing or Not to Sing. And they, they begin by talking about this existing popular belief that we've already been discussing, as well as some empirical evidence that music can possibly aid in memory, especially learning of verbal information, learning of words. And so they, they cite a few examples, such as previous studies, one by Dixon and Grant in 2003 that investigated uh, trying to learn the laws of physics through karaoke. <laughs> that sounds both sweet and really cringe-inducing. And then secondly, uh, they mentioned a study by Medina from 1993 that uh, looked into learning English as a second language via songs, uh, with the idea that songs might provide an advantage over just normal verbal content. Uh, but the authors point out that if it's true that singing and music help with learning verbal information, it's not obvious why that should be the case. Because after all, when you learn a song 
there's literally more information that you have to encode and retrieve than mm-hmm. when just learning, say, the, the text of a song, just the lyrics, because you're you're adding music on top of it. It seems like that would be more to remember, might be distracting, and thus would uh, you know would make things harder. Yeah, I mean, if, if memory serves, uh, some actors use the technique of learning their lines flat uh, without any kind of emotion added to them. And then that come, then they, they build on that later, you know, so they start w- without mm-hmm. any additional information aside from the words. And, you know, of course, you know, the meaning behind the words. Right. And though, it, uh, though, I guess we, we should always remember that acting techniques are not necessarily informed by uh, the latest memory and cognition. Research, <laughs> true, but... true. Yeah. Yeah. And like, all these things, there's also a, a certain amount of tradition and right. uh, different views on performance that, uh, you know, that, that may not be scientifically verified. Right, but that's another thing like we've uh, like we were talking about that you know at least it grows out of personal experience so you have to wonder if there's something there that could be plumbed by empirical research. Mm-hmm. So the authors here, uh, Reset and Peretz, they note that in previous studies the results looking into this question on whether music aids in in verbal learning and, and memory formation and, and retrieval the results have been kind of mixed, but while there, while uh, this is not the universal finding, there have been a number of studies that show people have an easier time recalling sung words uh, over spoken words. Uh, now, in their introductory section, they talk about a few reasons that are hypothesized for why this might be. Why might, if people do remember words from songs better than the same words spoken, uh, what what would be going on there? And so they say, well, maybe uh, speed actually plays a role. Because when you take a text and you sing it, generally you will spend a longer time pronouncing the words in the text than if you just read it or recite it out loud, and thus the text is sort of less compressed. They also say that the characteristics of the melody seem to be important because a simple melody that has a very sort of repeated line seems to be easier to memorize than complex melodies like you might find in, say, an opera or something. But then also they offer another reason that song lyrics might be easier to memorize, which are structural characteristics of the text that make it easier to recall. So uh, to read from their introduction, quote, for instance, the metrical structure of music and the number of musical notes in a line can cue word recall. Similarly, song lyrics are usually constrained by both semantics, meaning meaning that there is like a meaning constraint on what can be said in a song. Uh, so they say a story underlies the words generally through a schema or script. Uh, and that, so you, you've got the semantic constraints, you know, the song sort of has to tell a story that makes sense. Though it's certainly not true of all songs, especially these days. Um, but then the other thing would be sound patterns. And this would be things like rhymes or alliteration, uh, which they also say may again limit possibilities of what types of words could come next. You know, these offer you some schema of, of you know, predicting what the rest of the line would be. Hmm. That that's interesting because it makes me think of American Pie. It also makes me think of uh, Warren Zevon's Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner. Both mm-hmm. long songs that I easily remember, but both of them are are very narrative 
uh, songs. The lyrics tell a story, especially with Roland. Uh, you know, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end to it. There's a climax. Mm-hmm. And they've both got very regular rhythm in the delivery and mm-hmm. uh, and a rhyme scheme. Yes. And so those things can help you remember because they limit the possibilities of what could be coming up next in the song. If you know the, say, the rhyme sound at the end of the last line, that helps give you a clue as to what the next line is, whereas you you know you might have trouble recalling otherwise. Yeah. And the authors here note an interesting thing. They say, uh, when errors occur in song recall, they say, quote, the changes usually preserve the rhyme and the number of syllables in the line. So if you were, say, singing uh, American Pie and you couldn't remember drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry, you might at least be able to say took my Chevy uh, from the levee. And I looked at the sky, you know, it would be something that preserved yeah. the rhyme and preserved the meter, the number of syllables. Yeah, yeah. Like misheard and uh, misconstrued uh, lyrics are still going to, they're still going to meet the basic framework that was presented in the song. So anyway, in this study, the authors did a couple of experiments to see if learning verbal materials through song actually did provide a memory advantage over learning the same verbal materials uh, just recited or spoken. And so there were uh, three different conditions as people were trying to learn the lyrics of an unfamiliar song. And there are three different conditions here. So first is the sung sung condition. And in this condition, the, the subject would have the song sung to them, and then they would try to sing it back. Second is the sung-spoken condition, and here uh, they would have the song sung to them, but then they would try to speak the lyrics back. And then uh, the next condition, I thought this was interesting, they tried something called the divided spoken condition. And this is where they would be presented with the lyrics, but not sung, though they would be hearing the the accompanying background music. And I guess this Hmm. was to... This was sort of a control to try to rule out, wait a minute, could it just be that having the music going on while you're learning the words is what contributes to learning and not the fact that the lyrics themselves are being sung? Hmm. Now that's interesting. That makes yeah. me think of uh, of songs like uh, the Moody Blues, uh, Nights in White Satin, which has, of course, traditional lyrics, but then also has that spoken word segment. <laughs> and thinking back on it, like I, I can I can remember a lot of that spoken word segment from uh, Nights in White Satin, uh, despite the, the fact that it's not like a you know a, a piece that I'm particularly attached to. But uh, but but the words will come. Well, I guess so. In one of the conditions, that's what they're going to test here. Does that does the spoken word section actually have a, a memory advantage over just something being spoken without any music? Hmm. Um, So in keeping with sort of the conventional wisdom and with what a number of studies had found before, they predicted that the sung sung condition would create the best word recall. So when people heard uh, heard a song sung to them and they tried to sing it back, they would do the best. But uh, here's where I thought this got interesting. They found no. In this test, Hmm. the hypothesis was not confirmed. They predicted that the sung sung condition would be best. But they write, quote, however, fewer words were recalled when singing than when speaking. Furthermore, the mode of presentation, whether sung or spoken, had no influence on lyric recall, either short or long-term recall. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, at the end of their abstract, they write, quote, altogether, the results indicate that the text and the melody of a song have separate representations in memory, making singing a dual task to perform, at least in the first steps of learning. 
Interestingly, musical training had little impact on performance, suggesting that vocal learning is a basic and widespread skill. So uh, first of all, I'd just like to say, you know, I like this study because it's a great example of a negative finding that can still be really interesting. The hypothesis is not confirmed, yet we can still learn a lot from from what's going on here. And the authors had some interesting thoughts in their conclusion section about uh, about what might be happening uh, with music and, and uh, verbal memory. Uh, so I want to read a section from their uh, discussion in their conclusion that, that I thought was interesting here. So they say, nevertheless... One important cue for auditory vocal remembering that is common to both music and poems is rhythm. The regular organization of stresses, mostly alternating between strong and weak beats or syllables, is supposed to limit the words that are compatible with it and thereby constrains word selection. At least in English, the rhythmic similarity between the prosodic accent structure of spoken words and the metric structure of the melody is striking and has long been noted by linguists and music theorists. Moreover, Palmer and Kelly in 1992 have shown that linguistic accent structure and musical meter are generally aligned in Western songs. Hence, rhythmic structure as determined by the number of syllables or notes and the location of primary stress may serve as a compatible format for setting words to tones. By this account, recalling a particular stress pattern in a melody or spoken text activates a metrical grid that constrains the type of text or melody that is compatible with it. A common metrical grid is typically used throughout a song. Therefore, metric structure provides a means by which lines of an entire song are organized in a common hierarchical structure, thereby relating non-adjacent song components and helping memory. So I think what they're arguing here is that maybe in these cases where we have found that music aids in verbal memory, it's because the words in the music are set to a sort of poetic rhythmic structure, and it's that structure that makes things easier to memorize, not so much the setting it to the melody part. Hmm. Okay. Uh, they also note some interesting things, like one thing that uh, they mention is that advantages of lyrical recall might actually depend upon language. Uh, so just for example, it might be easier to recall words with the help of lyrical structures in English versus French. Uh, that's not clear. That's just a, a possibility they mentioned. Um, but then they also say something that I think might tie into to something you're going to discuss in a bit. Uh, so they argue in the end, quote, this conclusion raises the question of why music is believed to be so important for verbal memory, not only in oral tradition, but also in everyday life. We believe this is due to a misunderstanding of the utility of music. Music is not at the service of language. In songs, music contributes to the creation of a general mood that is shared with others. Mm -hmm. And then they quote an author named Booth from 1981 who writes uh, that a singer tells people, quote, nothing they need to decode or learn. He evokes in them ways of seeing life that they already have. Mm -hmm. And then they go on to say that, uh, quote, in fact, oral transmission of text is rarely word for word or verbatim in singing. Although singers believe that they sing the text exactly as heard, they never do so. Uh, and then cite studies by Rubin. Uh, Rubin did famous research into uh, recounting of like long oral poems, uh, things like the Iliad and the Odyssey uh, mm -hmm. that people supposedly do from memory. But a lot of these studies find that that actually while people think they are performing the same poem or song over and over, in fact, they are making 
uh, major changes to it as they do. And in fact, maybe the role of music is to sort of create the illusion that what you are recreating is the same thing rather than making it the same thing. Oh, so the structure is still the same. Uh, the words are still rhyming. Uh, therefore, surely nothing has changed, but there is, of course, room for stuff to have changed. Right. So details may change, but something about the fact that it is the same song creates the feeling that you are recreating the same work, even though the details are actually different. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I, I thought this study was really interesting, though it is older. This is from 2007. So I was trying to look through uh, more recent studies on this subject, the, the effects of music on uh, verbal memory and recall. And uh, tr trying to see if I could find anything, you know, if any newer conclusions had emerged. And it looks to me like the the landscape of, of findings on this is still somewhat mixed, like it is not mm. consistent. And that this may just indicate that there are different features of different kinds of music and verbal encoding tasks that uh, that, that provide different results in the end. So, for example, I was looking at one study from Frontiers in Psychology published in 2018 uh, by Lehman and Seufert called Can Music Foster Learning? Effects of Different Text Modalities on Learning and Information Retrieval. So they had different ways of having people try to learn text through written exposure, through spoken exposure, and through sung exposure. And uh, they found that the actually it was through exposure to written text that people recalled the most detail in the verbal text. However, they say, and, and this one really surprised me, but at least within this study, they say, quote, comprehension after learning with the sung modality was significantly superior compared to in learning with the written learning modality comprehension. Uh, so like comprehension of the, of the text being presented. So they say that reading helps people focus more on details, uh, which may help them answer sort of specific recall questions that would come down to a single word or detail later on. But listening to the verbal content as a song leads to higher levels of comprehension of the entire text. Hmm. Uh, so one last thing I came across, uh, I, I found an article in the Wall Street Journal from 2013 by Heidi Mitchell called Does Music Aid in Memorization? And this was interesting because it just uh, it, it consulted the opinion of a, of a leading American psychologist who does research on uh, on memory. And this uh, psychologist is Henry L. Rodiger III, who is a professor of psychology at the Memory Lab at Washington University in St. Louis. And what he says is there's wide agreement that information set to music is easier to remember. Uh, now, why would this be? Well, Rodiger actually uh, cites something that the, the authors of that earlier paper mentioned. So he says that music aids in memory because it helps in the retrieval process. So, of course, we know memory involves not only storage, but the act of retrieval. And this can be clearly evidenced by the tip of the tongue effect. You, you think about how you can know the word you want to use, but for some reason you can't locate that word in your memory at the moment. And then suddenly something clicks and then you have the word. So it was in there. It was retrievable in your brain, but you couldn't put it together. And likewise, you can fail to recall a memorized string of words, a memorized sentence, until maybe you get the first word in the string, and then it all comes rushing up out of the deep of your memory. 
Uh, and so, so Rodiger claims that music is helpful at retrieval of verbal information because it provides structure through things like rhythm and rhyme, like we were uh, talking about earlier, that the, the, the other authors discussed in, in their conclusion. And it's this structure, the rhythm and the rhyme, that acts as a cue that makes it easier to retrieve the stored information of, of the next line. So Rodiger claims that it is the structure, not the melody, that aids in the retrieval process. When it is the case that it's easier to remember lyrics, he thinks at least that it's probably due to the fact that lyrics are encoded in these rhythmic structures, things that have meter and they have rhyme that make them easier to recall than just unstructured strings of text. And, you know, I can kind of say that it is similarly easier to recall lines of poems, even though they're not sung out loud, just poems that have, uh, say, meter and rhyme, than it is to recall just lines of unstructured prose from stories that I like. Yeah, or um, or famous speeches. I feel like um, like a, perhaps at some point I, had to, I, was, I was asked to memorize the Gettysburg Address or something like that. And like that really doesn't stick with me. Some of Macbeth sticks with me because there is very much a, a cadence and a, and a rhythm uh, to, to all of that. Uh, mm. and, and also things like uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you know. Um, I, I certainly don't have it all memorized, but there's some some bits of it that are stuck in my memory. Uh, so, yeah, I, could, I can see what they're getting at in this, this paper. And then that might also explain cases where like – so if you take – song lyrics and you're just trying to say do people learn song lyrics better if they hear them spoken out loud or if they hear them sung and this is on initial exposure things might change if you know you you're exposed to these words either spoken or sung day after day for a long time but on initial exposure uh the the authors of that study from 2007 didn't really find a difference like you you did not do better if you heard them sung I wonder if that could just be because, well, they're song lyrics anyway. So even if they're spoken out loud, they would still have the same structure. They'd still have the rhythm and the rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah even if you're, if you're not uh, you know, hearing the song, Roland the Headless Thompson Gunner, there's still Roland was a gunner from the land of the midnight sun. You know, it has, yeah. it has that cadence and it has that rhyme. Oh, and in case in point, I actually got the lyrics wrong there. It's Roland was a warrior from the land of the midnight sun. But I got the important parts right. Well, it sounds like that that's what happens with songs, right? Like yeah. we, we keep the structure and, and you get things about the gist, but uh, but yeah, the details just seem to shift all over the place. Mm-hmm. Anyway, though, I mean, it seems to me like this is the kind of thing that we could probably return to in the future because I, I bet that there is still a lot more to learn about the relationship between uh, 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 verbal memory and music. It, it seems that the studies uh, we've looked at here established some things, but it still it still seems to be a messy picture where sometimes music does a- aid in memory and sometimes it doesn't. And, and figuring out exactly what uh, what all the variables are there would probably continue to be interesting. Yeah. So uh, I'd like to come back to. Um to, to, uh, to some of the ideas we were talking about earlier and then some of the ideas that came up in, uh, in, in your discussion of, um, of, of the work with lyrics. 
And and that concerns sort of this broader picture of of memory and music. Because memories involving music, they, of course, can be highly individual. Uh, we've already shared a, a few different examples of that. Uh, we, we also have any number of examples where a particular track or a particular work of music becomes linked to a particular idea, a particular book, a particular movie, a memory, a hope, or a dream, sometimes in a good way, uh, sometimes in a, in a bad way, or perhaps a, a slightly annoying way. Perhaps you've had a had a coworker with a with a particular ringtone uh, that that uh, that kind of jabbed at you, and and now that song is forever linked with just random outbursts from this person's phone. There there is a David Bowie song where I can no longer hear the opening guitar riff without thinking that the next thing is is going to be like hearing a voice saying, "Hey, what's up?" <laughs> uh. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the direction I wanted to go in, though, at, at this point in the episode is to, is to get into the, the idea of the connection between music and, and not only individual memory, but collective memory. Mm, okay. Now, uh, you're probably wondering, some of you may be wondering, okay, well, what is collective memory? Uh, to tell us or, or remind us. Well, uh, French philosopher and sociologist Maurice uh, Halbwachs uh, born 1877, died 1945, developed the concept of collective memory, and has been explored by various other thinkers since then. Uh, the basic idea is that while individuals remember things, groups of people also remember things together. Now, I was also reading uh, a paper titled Collective Memory, What Is It? by Getty and Elam from a 1996 volume of History and Memory. And here the authors make a connection between the modern concept of collective memory and you know much older traditions of myth and legend, uh, because this is this is arguably how we used to understand some of these concepts in terms of national myths, local legends, and so forth. But as we'll discuss, uh, modernity affects some of the apparent mechanisms and flows involved here uh, with individual and collective memories of events and uh, and histories. Now, there are two distinct areas of collective memory. There's small-scale collective memory, and this is in small-scale groups, uh, you know, among the members of small-scale groups. And then there are large-scale collective memories in large-scale groups. And this uh, later category is also known as memory boom. Uh, there's, uh, there's also literature about the connections between the two, because anytime we're talking about these memories, like individual memory, small-scale collective memory, large-scale collective memory, uh, they are not, uh, you know, distinct things separated by walls. They, are, they, they influence each other. And so there's, there's very much the individual experience of all of this. But even if you have a group of just two people, you see this interesting thing emerge. And we've talked about this before uh, on the show. And there are some, actually some studies about this, about how uh, couples, uh, you know, any kind of any two, any two people who have kind of like a long-term close relationship, they'll often do this thing where they share the task of remembering certain things. Mm-hmm. And this can be a point of, uh, you know, slight irritation at, at times. Like, why am I the one that remembers uh, – you know, uh, 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 Uncle Karen's uh, birthday or, or whatever the thing might be. And mm-hmm. we end up doing this thing where we, uh, uh, we allow the other person to be the, 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 the rememberer of that particular fact. And then perhaps we end up remembering other things. And then you engage in this kind of uh, collective remembering of things. Uh, and this is, this is, of course, one of the great great pleasures in life, right? You get together with uh, either you're, you're talking with a significant other or perhaps it's a close friend or a relative. And what do you do together? You share stories, but you remember things together. Yeah. Remember when. Yeah. Though it's great to point out the idea of, of sharing stories as, as being crucial to this, this collective uh, memorization, because that's sort of like 
it it puts emphasis on the fact that the the retrieval of these memories often in itself is a type of performance it's like a creative act in a way and uh and i think that's one reason you ever get in the situation where uh you are together with a group of people and say your spouse says i uh oh here's a you know they bring up the concept of a story but then they want you to tell it Mm-hmm. You know, and so the, you can kind of something sometimes doesn't quite feel right there because it's a story that you could tell, but somehow, I don't know, like you don't feel like up to performing it at that moment. It's not like you can't remember the details as they're supposed to be told, but something mm-hmm. about being put on the spot is like, ah, I was not ready to perform. So it's almost like you can't remember but I think a lot of times we we kind of stow away the idea that, well, this person, either they have the better telling of the story, they have the beats down, they can mm-hmm. tell it in a funny way, or sometimes it's more that person's story to tell, right? Like, it's, yeah. it's their experience, so it's, it, maybe you don't feel as, as, as right being the, the bearer of that story. Like, like, you need to tell it. Please tell that story. It's such a good one. So, so basically in all of this, a, a kind of emergent memory can emerge from a small group of people or a large group of people. Um, oh, and of course, we have to remember we're talking about, when we're talking about memory retrieval, we have to recall that the, the mere act of retrieving a memory can alter the memory. Uh, and in fact, the, the memories that we retrieve the most are perhaps the ones we can trust the least, right? Um, but uh, in, in either case, it's important to, to drive home. We're talking about psychological and historical concepts here. And uh, it's, it's a different beast from objective history, but rather a view of the past that involves specific views and values of a given group. Right. I mean, I, I think that's something that should come through. It's not that humans never recall details accurately. Sometimes they do. But broadly, I think it is better to think about your memory as a sort of uh, a mythology based on facts about history rather than a, an, ob- an objective recording of events. Yes, yes. The, the link between mythology and uh, and even individual memory, but also collective memory, I think is strong. And you can also tie in, I think, uh, you know, various connections to the idea of uh, you know collective unconscious and the power of various uh, symbols and tropes. Um, but the basic concept here of collective memory is sometimes described as social memory, and uh, it is also sometimes criticized for being very monolithic in its approach, because everyone in a particular group is not actually going to have the exact same memory of something. And while their various memories might contribute to a collective memory, they are still not going to have the same specific memories of the event. Also very true of mythology. I mean, there's rarely just one version of a myth, right? You know, you, right, right. you get all these different variations on where did Medusa come from or uh, whatever. But then often you will have somebody come along and attempt to codify it and say, this is the version that we are adhering to. And sometimes this is merely, you know, sometimes it's accidental. Like a great storyteller comes along and retells the story and now this is the one. Other times, you know, there, there are uh, potentially nefarious uh, attitudes involved. You know, particularly if you have someone who is looking to, to lead people or manipulate people. And in doing so, they might say, well, this, this is our collective memory. Surely you remember it this way. This is the way that, uh, uh, that I would like for you to think of it. But, you know, we might think of this, we might take this concept and apply it to something like, the, say, the 1960s in America. 
there are and were individual memories of this time period, but there also are and were collective memories of that decade. And depending on who you were and uh, where you were, there was likely a fair amount of drift concerning the exact flavor of that time period. Was it a time of liberation, a time of struggle, a time of great danger, a time of laughable fashions? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but hopefully you get the idea. And on top of that, media plays a role in all of this as well. Uh, again, as do certain manipulations of uh, recollections of, of times uh, by people who have a particular um, agenda uh, in, in all of it. And of course, music plays a part as well. And in this, I come to the, the paper that I was, I was reading about all of this, um, titled uh, Record and Hold, Popular Music Between Personal and Collective Memory. I wonder if that might have been a, uh, an allusion or a play on Sample and Hold from uh, uh, Neil Young. I don't know. Uh, but it's by the, the, the researcher uh, Jose Van Dank, uh, published in Critical Studies in Media Communication from 2006. Van Dank writes that, quote, people nourish emotional and tangible connections to songs before entrusting them to their personal, mental, and material reservoirs. But they also need to share musical preferences with others before songs become part of a collective repertoire that, in turn, provides new resources for personal engagement with recorded music. So her main contention here is that, that musical memories emerge and become codified at the intersection of personal memory, collective memory, and identity. Uh, you know, which leads to the question, how do personal and collective memories intermingle here? And I think this is really quite interesting to think about. Uh, for, for instance, think back to a song that came out when, let's say, you were in high school or perhaps college or perhaps some other just formative time in your life. You know, think about a time when a lot of new music was entering your life and uh, your life was changing and, and so forth. So first of all, how did you think about the song then and how do you think about it now? How did your group, small or large, think about the song how have you come to reflect on it as a product of that time period? And how was the song packaged and sold to you at the time, figuratively and per perhaps literally? And then how has the media been packaged or repackaged since then? You know, I, I recall a kind of youthful arrogance about my taste in music when I was in high school. And I, a lot of the stuff I liked, I'm sure I would now regard as quite horrible. <laughs> um, but, I, but I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, finally, music is good, you know, about <laughs> about like the kind of music that I liked then. I mean, I, I guess I grew out of that fairly quickly, but like there was a kind of a feeling of like, ah, okay. You know, this new, this new type of metal that I'm into now, which in my case was probably like early two thousands metal. So, you know, like real good stuff. <laughs> uh, I was like, finally, you know, we've, we've reached sort of the apex of music. This is what it's all been building up to. This is the new frontier here. There's a kind of pity for like previous generations who didn't have the, you know, they didn't really know what music was about because there wasn't disturbed yet. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me, I think it was a Noel Fielding line about how, um, uh, 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 saying something about like Adam Ant having been having invented music and someone mm -hmm. was like, well, what about classical music? And he was like, well, it was just, that was just warming up. You know, like, like well, whatever came before the music that was pivotal for you, like that was just the, the precursor, the necessary precursor to the real music uh, that, was, that was actually speaking, which is, is ridiculous, but also I think makes a lot of sense as we, as we move on through all of this. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a lot to consider when thinking about it, but, uh, uh, and, and, the, and those questions here that I asked, they only scratch the surface, but 
as um, as Van Dank points out, uh, number one, remembering is an active process of a mind in the world. So we are stirred to remember things by a multitude of stimuli. So it's you know it's, you're not just a black box of memory. There's all this additional stuff coming in, stirring memories. Um, you know, and sometimes like stirring them up to into a into a storm, into a uh, you know a, a new obsession or a reobsession. The second point is that, that music is enabled through instruments and technology, and, quote, enabling apparatus becomes part of the recollecting experience. Uh, so this is, I think this is perhaps worth remembering as we occasionally throw out old physical albums and playing devices, like all mm. of that stuff. And I'm not saying, hey, keep all of your, your garbage, uh, but, but it's worth remembering that, yeah, that, that physical album is still a part of the experience of that album. And uh and uh, I guess some of us maybe cling on to that idea more than others. Uh, pieces of my soul will always live on unlabeled burned CDs. <laughs> All right. The, the next point that uh, Van Dyke makes is that music emerges from a socio-technological context. And then also, quote, remembrance is always embedded. So the social context within which we live stimulate memories of the past. Uh, for an example of this, she points to internet forums and, and radio programs as things that don't merely stimulate such musical memories, but also help construct collective memory. Oh, yeah. I mean, so music is powerfully evocative, but in, to a great extent, we determine what it evokes by talking about it with each other. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, there's because there's what the music means to me. It's what the music means to us. You know, the, again, the collective memory of, of what this song is or what it, it was, what it meant, uh, you know, especially when songs become anthems, right? When they become mm-hmm. uh, things that are attached to movements, uh, to generations, or just to particular scenes and times. Now, I mentioned high school and college for a reason here. These are periods of time, but not, but not the only periods of time, during which we often build out our musical tastes and in doing so, construct our own identity, and it's kind of crazy to think about that. You know, these are these are largely sonic and linguistic chunks of technologically constructed media that are used to build out the cultural self. So I'm I'm taking this building block, you know, dripping in the cultural honey of the hive from which I have I have yanked it, and now I'm I'm putting it inside myself. I'm implanting it in my body, altering the shape and the form of my own being. And so the music becomes me, and I become that music. Totally. Now, she, she points out that exactly how music gets stuck in our memories is kind of hard to nail down because different networks and functions of, of the brain are involved in music remembrance. There's cognitive, there's, there's emotive, there's um, uh, somatosensory. Uh, she cites um, cognitive scholar Patrick Colm Hogan, who says, quote, the tendency of working memory to cyclic repetition combined with the exaggerated accessibility of a simple and frequently repeated tune gives rise to a situation in which the song is likely to cycle repeatedly through working memory. And this touches on some of what we were talking about already. Sure, on the basis that Every time you recite a memory, you make that memory easier to access in the future, though not necessarily accurately, but you at least (laughs) make it easier to access in the future. And songs by their very nature, especially sort of catchy songs with easily repeatable melodies and and lines, um, really are easy to recite in the head. So you you sort of like you, you implant them for very powerful ease of retrieval in the future. Yeah, and and when you you start talking about repetition in these songs, 
Um, one of the things that uh, the Van Dank points out is that technology aids in it immensely. Because um, the, the advent of recorded music technology allowed us to engage in true repetition and to expose ourselves um, cyclically to particular songs, both privately and collectively. Um, and I think we can all probably uh, think of examples of this where we... You know, we hit on that one song, and nothing but that song is going to do it, do it for us right now. So, what do we do? We put that baby on repeat. You'll listen to it like you know five, six, ten times in a row, even mm-hmm. uh, just continuing to get that hit. And um, I, I, I wonder, like, in, yeah, in the old days, I guess if, if you had a song in your head and in your heart, you could just continually sing it to yourself as you just went about your day. Um, but, but. I, but. Without yeah. recorded media, you have the chance to change it in the process of doing that. That's right. That's right. You could change it a little bit each time, even uh, you know, f- come up with your own lyrics, I guess. And um, and I guess you, you probably saw that emerge, especially with like work songs, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like people working collectively, collectively sharing in a song, and then perhaps contributing to it and building upon it as they went. But uh, but it makes me think of these various like especially like medieval style and fantasy setting um, shows where you'll have like a pub scene and there's a performer there's a bard singing a song mm-hmm. and usually the bard will sing the song once but in reality would you have a situation where they're like yeah we love that let's let's just keep doing it no that song over and over again uh huh I don't know I don't know what the answer is <laughs> have you ever been to a concert where the musician played the same song twice. Oh, I don't know I that I, I have. No, that occurs occasionally. If huh. yeah, if the audience demands it. <laughs> all right. Um, so we don't remember all the songs we hear, but we we do remember a lot of songs, especially if we can pair it up with a specific emotional, physical response. Even stuff as simple as, "Well, this song pumps me up." You know, and and I think we can all think of examples of that, right? Maybe it's it's not even the song that you like really connect with in a lot of meaningful ways, but it gets your blood pumping, and therefore it's easy to remember. But this alone can't account for the stickiness of music and memory. Uh, so Van Dunk also points to two uh, complementary theories. There is the neurocognitive theory, and this is the, the feeling associated with the song uh, is, is inscribed in our, in our biographical meaning and, uh, recalling them causes a flood of emotion and time event relationship specifics. And then there's the cultural, uh, semiotic theory. The, the musical sign is not the key thing, but rather the emotions, feeling, and experiences attached to hearing a particular song. So the, the comparison that has been made here is that a tree is falling in a forest, the forest is the song, and the waves emanating from the falling tree are the emotions. Okay. I don't know if that clarifies anything for, <laughs> for anybody, but, um, but, but, I, uh, but hopefully what these two theories both kind of work at is that, yeah, there's the song, there's the lyrics, but then there are all of these um, you know, biographical elements, and, it's the, and, and some of this is perhaps may come off as an overstatement of the obvious, you know, like that time when you heard this song, that time when you listened to this song six, six times in a row, like all of that becomes encoded in the memory of the thing and the nostalgia of the thing. Right. Well, another way to think about it is that there is no way to appreciate a song on its own terms. There actually is no, you know, there, there is no way to just uh, think about a song. You're always thinking about it with some kind of biographical and cultural framing. 
So you will have, you know, independent personal emotions, feelings, and biographical details that will become associated with that song. And you will probably keep reproducing in memory every time you hear the song or sing the song. Uh, but then there will also possibly be these broader sort of cultural associations with it. It fits into a, a time, a, a, a social context, a political context, and, and it means something to you within that context. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, as, a, as an example of, of some of this, um, in her paper, uh, Van Dank goes into, yeah, looks at an, an example from a Dutch pop music survey. Uh, it's called the, the Dutch Top 2000, and this is a radio event. Mm-hmm. And uh, she argues that the, the Dutch Top 2000 is a great example of how, quote-unquote, uh, mediated memories uh, are shaped at the intersections of personal and collective memory. So this was a, a national radio event with generated user responses in narrative form, like people, uh, pe- people sharing their connection with a particular song, what it means to them, uh, a narrative form for those memories. And uh, since it's a major media event, it also helps to shape cultural memories through the sharing of the, the individual connection to the song. Mm. Uh, so, so I found that, that interesting. I was trying to think, do we, are there examples of that from, uh, you know, f- from my, my own experience with music? Or I don't know if you have experiences with this, because oftentimes it's, you know, music is presented to you and it's presented to you uh, by, a, by a DJ or a, or a VJ, if you were watching uh, you know, MTV back in the day. And maybe they might add some sort of personal experience or some sort of priming as to why this song is important, but maybe not. Um, mm. I, I guess sometimes back in the old days, maybe they do this still, people would have um, uh, requests on the radio and would like, you know, say, this song goes out to so-and-so. Uh, I could see that being a form of this. So I hope this serves as just kind of a you know introduction to some of these ideas. Um, the, the topic of music and collective memory plays into a number of interesting looking papers uh, and, and books even that um, are perhaps beyond the scope of this episode, but I thought I might mention a couple of them in passing in case people wanted to explore further. Uh, there's, there's Music, Memory, and Nostalgia, Collective Memories of Cultural Revolution Songs in Contemporary China. This one was by Bryant, came out in 2005 in the China Review. And there was also a, a, a book uh, edited, but edited by um, Baz Kwaska and uh, Baumgartner titled Music, Collective Memory, Trauma, and Nostalgia in European Cinema After the Second World War. And I was looking at that one a little bit, and it, uh, this, this is something that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that is worth noting, like the, the, the way that we strongly forge these connections between music and cinema. Uh, and mm. and it and some and, and and just sort of visual media in general, and sometimes it can kind of co-opt the original meaning of a song, uh, and that song becomes forever associated with uh, with say a particular uh, period of time or or a conflict, etc. All right, well we're gonna we're gonna go and close things out here. But obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there because, again, everybody has some sort of connection to, to what we've been talking about here. And you're going to have specific examples that might be worth sharing uh, from your own life and your own, your, your own musical history. Uh, I also want to throw in, I did look it up real quick, the Dynasties song that I'm thinking about, um, the, the way to remember the, the Dynasties of China. It's sung to the tune of Frere Jaca. Uh, so uh, uh, you can find examples of that online if you want. I am, I'm not going to sing it now. 
In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed available wherever you get your podcasts. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have Listener Mail on Mondays, Artifact on Wednesdays as a short-form episode. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set most serious matters aside and just focus in on a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.